Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. So yeah, my name is Thomas Felton. I'm a laboratory genetic counselor. It's my title. It doesn't describe anything that I do at UNC Health. Um, uh, unlike a lot of people that I'm not sure who you all uh, might be able to meet through this program, uh, I'm actually a hospital employee, not a university employee. So there's some differences between the two of them, but they can make a very large impact. Um, but essentially, I'm just going to run through first uh, my education so you guys can kind of see where, you at, where you're at in, in, in the uh, kind of progression of how I went through my education. And then I'll talk about my current job, uh, and I have four main kind of realms I work in. Um, and then I also kind of just get called on for anything that, that is in addition to genetics. Um, so uh, I started at Harwood College, small overall school, uh, just south of the cities. Um, and I did a bio major there. So um, it was BA, so you don't really get to specialize. But I had um, done my concentrations, which are, we don't have made minors, so I did concentrations in statistics, chemistry, um, and then, uh, as well as, it, technically it was like math, but I don't know, I didn't do any real math, I just did like stats and probability. Um, and then I also worked in the summers, I worked at a plant laboratory, so I essentially um, did RT-PCR real-time uh, reverse uh, PCR to essentially do expression data on plant roots. It sounds way more interesting if it, when I explain it that way than in reality when you just grow tiny plants on petri dishes, uh, cut their roots off, and then smash them up and, and put them in a tube. Um, but it was very interesting. I learned a lot about uh, like writing, uh, writing grants, um, those types of processes throughout that. Um, and you also got to learn how to um, write true like lab protocols in that sense as well. Um, and then I would also, during the time when I was an undergraduate, I worked on a with the University of Minnesota to do a variant, or not a variant curation, a, um, a genetic testing panel curation project. So essentially, um, when we do genetic testing, we're often using, we look at many genes all at once, and we call them a panel of genes. Um, and I was helping the University of Minnesota curate what genes were going to go on their cardiology panel. So what I did was I did a, a very large systematic review of public databases uh, to try and figure out what types of genes are on those panels. Um, and then also what genes are not on those panels but might be important to have in the future. Um, and then tried to cut them up and, and strategically um, align them to be able to be the most diagnostic for um, certain um, indications for their clinic. Um, I actually went straight into my master's from there. So then I went to the University of Minnesota for two years master's in science and genetic counseling. Um, and the two years master's program, I'm not sure 
if you guys, I'm sure there's other GCs that you'll be able to have a little bit of access to um, through this program. But um, for essentially for our program, they can they can vary pretty widely across the U.S. My um, first year of education was mostly medical genetics. Um, we do classes with med school. We do um, genetic counseling specific classes. We do population based um, uh, genetics studies with like the psych department for like twin studies and GWAS studies. Um, and then we also do a rotation with the cytogenetics laboratory. So looking at um, larger genomic information like chromosomes, microarrays, so looking at a very kind of large scale, as well as a molecular genetics rotation. So we also went through and, and um, did a lot of the sequencing and, and some of the more um, uh, like next generation sequencing type um, uh, information there. Um, with those, we also learned how to do report writing, um, uh, kind of got a much better grasp on how you uh, medical writing works, what's important, what's not, how do you trim it down, how do you get to the most important types of things. Um, year two is almost all clinic and thesis based. So you transition, now you have this basic knowledge that they kind of cram into you the first year. Um, and then you essentially try and apply that as best you, pops, as best you can with, with a lot of guidance. Um, so I did clinical rotations in cancer pediatric cystic fibrosis clinics, um, and then a commercial laboratory as well as a prenatal um, clinic. Um, and, and again, you just apply all those genetic, not genetic things that you kind of curated and, and, and got in your back pocket from the first year. Um, and then I worked on my thesis throughout that whole process, um, and I did um, uh, a thesis about pharmacogenomic testing, um, so testing people's genes to see how they metabolize drugs um, and, and whether we should prescribe them different things or, or um, trying to avoid some adverse reactions to that, those drugs. Um, and then throughout uh, as well, we um, also had graduate assistant teaching jobs. So we also taught in laboratories for that process um, and had time to, to be able to, to kind of make some money and, and um, teach and learn, learn in a different way, essentially. Um, and then for my current job, uh, like I said, I work for UNC Health, so I'm a hospital employee, so that's why I get to come to work every day, even though there's a pandemic. <laughs> um, so I work kind of in four different realms. Uh, the first realm is in our in-house laboratories. So we have a cytogenetics laboratory here to help with diagnosis for cancers um, and to be able to uh, help uh, track progression of disease um, for blood cancers. Um, we also do things like diagnosing trisomy 21 during and after pregnancy. Um, uh, and then we also have an in-house molecular um, laboratory that does a lot of sequencing um, and, and things like diagnosing people with like cystic fibrosis, um, where it's just a lot looking at the genes in a much more confined way. Um, and then so in our in-house laboratory responsibilities, I essentially do report writing. I do case triage and review for accuracy of the um, uh, whether the, the orders are correct or not. Maybe that person's already had this test and they don't need it again, so we don't want to rerun a test. Um, uh, and then I do a lot of customer service. So if anybody has any questions or any problems with ordering or anything like that, I'm the one that they usually call um, for in-house testing. Um, the second realm of kind of things that I deal with is referral testing. So any tests that we don't perform here at UNC Health, we have to send out to like a larger laboratory like Mayo, Request or LabCorp, um, 
So I usually do a case review for that. So I review all genetic tests that are ordered in that way. Um, and then I also work with a lot of the sales representatives and VPs and things like that for contracts um, to make sure that we have the right protections for us and them. Um, and then I also work with them for um, a lot of various different projects. Um, uh, it kind of wrapped into those two. The third kind of large thing that I do for UNC Health is do clinical testing algorithms. So this is where I go to, let's say, pediatric cardiology or pediatric neurology. And I go sit down with their, their physicians and I um, show them what tests they've been ordering. And I write down and figure out how they should be going through a progression of, let's say, as an example, there's a patient with epilepsy that walks in and we're highly suspicious it could be a, a genetic epilepsy. Um, we have an algorithm for that so they know what tests to order and in what order um, uh, so that we don't have kind of a free-for-all in that department. And when things break down, then we have a much more structured way of us having a conversation about it. And those types of algorithms give us a lot of availability for me to, to reduce the manual review I have to do of all these different tests as well as it increased our testing volume because they feel more comfortable sending more tests uh, on, on those individual patients. Um, so we come up with a clinical criteria and then that progression of, of different tests that they should order um, given the clinical presentation of their patients. Um, so I do that for any and all people who are willing to sit down with me to do that because it makes my job easier um, and it makes it a lot more streamlined for them. Uh, these are the same types of people that I work with um, for customer service for both our referral testing laboratory and our in-house laboratory. So I have a lot of contact through them as well. Um, the last kind of big portion of my job is data integration and then work with the program for precision medicine and healthcare. Um, so I um, work very closely since I'm responsible for kind of reviewing, uh, going into a lot of patients' charts to try and figure out what genetic tests they've had do they have a diagnosis, um, all those different sorts of things. Um, uh, I'm very passionate about how our genetic information is being displayed in your medical chart. So uh, if you had a test five years ago and your doctor doesn't know that you had a test and they send another $1,200 test on you, uh, you're going to be pretty frustrated about that. And I'll be pretty frustrated because then I missed it. Um, but if we have a way of, of organizing your genetic information in your chart that we can access it easily, everyone knows where to go, um, we can even search and queue it. Um, that would be great in a, in a single patient instance, um, as well on a more population base. Um, let's say uh, Dr. Berg, um, who runs a lot of our, our cancer genetics and, and runs a precision medicine program, wants to know how many patients have had this type of genetic tests, um, given that they meet, meet clinical criteria. Um, we want to be able to go in our medical record on a mass scale across many patients and see how many patients are getting the appropriate treatment um, in, the, in the context of, of genetics. And those are the two types of kind of ways that we can't do that if everything's hidden in a way. Let's say we have a piece of paper that we scan into your chart. Can't search like a scan in your, in your chart, right? Same thing as like attachment to an email. A lot of the genetic testing um, results are right now an attachment into an entry into your chart. So it's very hard for us to, to search that. Um, like you search your email, it doesn't pop up the words that are in the PDF within a document in your um, email. So those are the types of problems that we have. How do we take that attachment and move it into the chart in a structured way for us to, to, to be able to search and queue it? Um, 
which I know nothing about computers. So I get to just ask for things and then they tell me no and then I ask why and then I don't understand the answer. So <laughs> I'm more there to, to ask and, and direct and, and be able to um, try and clearly portray the, the wishes that we have. Um, and then I get to be told why it doesn't work and then we try and work it out. So it's a lot of uh, back and forth. It's a lot of convert, like conversing about um, things that I don't understand. Um, and they're trying to code things that they have no idea what they understand. So it's a very good meeting of minds to be able to, to try and get everybody um, to kind of mutually understand what's going on. Um, so those are the four main realms. And then anything in between those four usually falls on my plate. So um, anything from jumping over to make sure a patient gets the saliva kit in clinic, um, going down to clinic to make sure that someone gets seen or they have a really complex genetic result and they, they want some help portraying it to that patient or family, I can do that. Um, uh, making sure that we have collection media, if someone's getting like a skin punch biopsy instead of a normal blood draw for their, for their genetic testing. Um, so I, I, my job, my, diff, my job is different every single day, which I love. Um, I, I do do things every day that are routine. Uh, everyone does in their job. And then the rest of my time is filled with things like this or meetings and some very interesting, odd things that I do end up doing. Um, but those are the fun things and those are the things that, that give your job variety. Um, but yeah, that's all I got. I have a quick question. You mentioned that there were differences between working for UNC Health and then working for the university. Can you touch on some of those differences? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you work for a university, often you have um, some obligation to teach or give back to the students of that, uh, that university, those types of things. You also, uh, the university has a little bit different, um, larger motivations than a hospital system as well. You can compare it to something like a private hospital versus a public hospital. Um, uh, I also have to be a little bit more kind of fiscally minded when approaching this. I can't just go and spend as much money as I want to on a patient because I think it's a really interesting case. Um, those are different types of approaches that you have to take to healthcare when you're in a, a entity that needs to make money and balance a budget versus an entity where you have that pre-planned budget where you go out and get money um, through a grant or something like that. And then you know that you can fill it up with whatever you want to. For us, we have to kind of work the opposite where we have to take a deficit up to a certain point because we're a public um, And then we have to find a way to get reimbursed for that. Um, so it's kind of, you're working in opposite ways. It's like putting money on your credit card versus um, getting a loan before you ever start spending money. Um, and also the, that's the way I kind of like to explain it. So whatever you can think of that would drive those two entities to do it differently is, is somewhat like that. Um, it, it also means that um, I just report to different people. So anybody else that you plug that's a genetic counselor out of here is usually reporting very structured into the clinic. Um, I'm, I report essentially directly to the director of the laboratories and then the VP of all labs at UNC Health. So um, just a very different reporting structure. Thank so, you. Yeah. I had a quick question because I know you mentioned data integration. So did you have you done any work like that before? Like 
you know, like, what did you do to, like, prepare as a biochemistry major? I think have a lot of experience in computer science, but I know it's a useful tool, like, with that integration and other kind of analysis. So how did you get practice doing that, or did you kind of learn how to um, I'm lucky enough where there's people's whole jobs that are responsible for like creating things that I ask for. So I, I had the luxury of not having to, to go and do that. Um, I also have a brother who's, I, I call him IT man. He has a computer science degree. Um, so <laughs> I lean on him a bunch, but, uh, so I, I'm a big supporter of, of finding the resources that you have around you rather than, than overexerting yourself to, to have an unnecessary portion of knowledge. I think anybody that is your guys' age would benefit greatly by just, just simply taking like an intro computer science class to learn the structures of things. And, and if you think in a science-oriented mind, you're, you'll find that it's a very logical transition. Um, it, it's a very, um, very structured way of thinking and it's a, just more of a visualization of what's going on on a computer and, and how data works. Um, I do work outside of UNC Healthcare as a consultant, so I work um, on my own doing that, and that is a lot of data, kind of structure, how would you structure your data, those types of things, and usually the, I find the easiest space is like drawing it out, like what's the parent and the child relationship, does it need to be a more hierarchy relationship, those types of things of just knowing how data interact with each other doesn't necessarily take a knowledge that is super specific to that data integration. If you can kind of conceptualize it, those types of things, um, it, it's a lot like being able to, to think about um, in your head what the central dogma of like genetics is, right? If you can think like it goes from one to the next to the next, you can think, well, what happens if you all of a sudden have regulation and this goes down, how does it react with the rest of the things? So being just having those skills and, and building that um, uh, kind of, approach to thinking is something that scientists, data scientists, computer scientists all approach through a similar lens. So I think you'll find that you'll have a lot more commonalities and differences. Um, you will never learn all the acronyms that a computer scientist will use. I found that out. It's impossible. Um, I, I ask him, I think I've asked him about the same like four acronyms every meeting we've ever had. I think they're going to give me like a handout pretty soon. Of like acronyms Tom should know by now. Um, but yeah, no, there's, and, and the, it's just like, it's like learning a language too. I talk about like phenotypes and diseases and clinical diseases, like all this other stuff that we can talk about. Um, it's also just kind of being recognized with the language. So I always tell people like Google stuff before you go into a meeting, which is like the best and worst, <laughs> best and worst uh, uh, advice you can give people. So that's a long answer for saying I wouldn't overexert yourself if you can kind of uh, work together with someone that you can mutually communicate with that has those types of skills. That was a very more concise answer, actually. <laughs> and all genetic counselors love hearing themselves talk, so I can just keep talking. I uh, do any of the other question right now. Uh, yeah, I had a question. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you touched on this, but do you ever interact with patients or are you just mostly like in the lab? Um, I, I don't have a traditional patient-facing patient role, so I don't have a clinic schedule or anything like that. 
Um, when I usually go and see a patient, it is because um, for one of two reasons. Someone's on call and they, they need someone to come and do like a consent for a very complex test, something like whole exome or whole genome sequencing. If we don't have any clinical um, counselors on site, whatever. Mm -hmm. I can kind of help out on that sense. The other thing is if we have an exceptionally complex um, uh, result, um, then I can also kind of go and help them explain what might be going on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Usually that's with a physician or with a clinical genetic counselor. So uh, we had an incidental finding that I went and helped explain uh, a while back where um, we had a phenotypically um, uh, developing female, but their chromosomes were indicative of what we would thought would be a phenotypic male. So we had sat down and had that type of conversation um, and, and just had uh, a lot of testing to get through and you know, explaining what genes are is one thing to a patient. And then you start talking about chromosomes and what makes you a boy or male or female uh, when you're assigned your sex at birth. Um, it is very different than what makes you a male or female genetically versus male and female later on, right? So um, those types of things that like defining what gender, sex, assigned sex are, are three different. And we, we usually use the term like genetic sex um, mm -hmm. just because we're kind of constrained and we find out if you have an X or Y chromosome, which has no handle on, on really what you look like and, and, and what you do. So um, those types of complex conversations is usually what I get put into. Okay. So in those situations, do you, would, do you say like you have to be put in a position where you have to know how to like de-escalate if a patient is feeling uncomfortable or distressed in some sense, or is it up to the doctor that's assisting you? Yeah. So I think the, um, traditionally genetic counselors are used in that. And, and a lot of people who are, are, are going into genetic counseling school get a lot of counseling experience with, um, things like crisis hotlines, those types of things. So during that second year when I was in clinic, we also learn a lot more about um, using our counseling skills to be able to to explain and then and also deal with a lot of grief, deal with a lot of blame, those types of things. Because when you're talking about things that are inherited, you can also get a lot of individuals who feel very at fault if they pass this genetic abnormality onto their kids, those types of things. So we work a lot by kind of unloading that and just trying to be able to, to have much more structured and better conversations uh, uh, in relation to that. Some people can get very combative um, and, and that's okay. I think people grieve in, in a lot of different ways um, and they can be very frustrating conversations as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I rely very much less on my like so, psychosocial counseling skills than a lot of the clinical counterparts that I have. I do use it, but usually it's in a much different way. The majority of people that I communicate with is on a very much more higher level of, of technical terms with a lot more physicians, uh, directors, laboratory staff um, than, than anybody who could be walking through the door as a patient. So definitely a different kind of approach to what we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will give you a question just to keep things moving. Um, yeah. So you talked about the algorithm that's supposed to help clinicians kind of go through their decision-making. Um, I was wondering if you thought about what happens if a patient is uninsured or they have Medicaid, which doesn't cover genetic testing at this time in North Carolina. Yeah. And, yeah, so, um, yeah. 
Yeah, go ahead if you want to. Oh, I was just going to say, is there any support in place for those patients? Absolutely. So um, when we're walking through those algorithms, most of the complexity is due to payers uh, and how we get paid, who pays Medicaid, who pays the test. So um, right now what we do is we utilize a lot of free testing so that that patient signs a contract to say, yes, I'll do this test. Uh, I feel comfortable with my de-identified information being owned by NVTEC. So their sample is still theirs. All their genetic information is still theirs, but they, they allow NVTEC to be able to take and sell that information, which then they turn around and be able to, to offer sponsored tests. So it's a free test as long as you sign up for it and, and give out a little bit of clinical information, but no personal health information. So we utilize that a lot. Um, those are in a lot of our protocols, um, which save the hospital a lot of money. Um, the billing usually goes, uh, we see about a 60% Medicaid or Medicare population at our hospital. Um, so that means that we're being underpaid usually by Medicaid or Medicare for the services that we're providing. Um, how, how billing usually is structured is we provide a service. We bill that patient's insurance that for that service. They come back and say, we're going to pay this amount of money. And we say, okay, we'll take that. And then we turn around and whatever is left over after that, we bill to the patient. Um, for Medicaid, uh, we do not charge any patient any money for their services. So we will bill Medicaid. They'll give us some or no money back, but we will never push a bill to a patient here. Medicare is a little bit different because you can supplement it with other types of insurances. So it gets exceptionally complex. Usually what happens is they uh, sign what we call an advanced ben beneficiary notice. So they agree to pay whatever we're going to charge them beforehand. So they, we do would, we would bill Medicaid or Medicare patients some money. Um, and then for insurances, what we can do is call that insurance ahead of time and say, hey, how much money would, would, would this cost after um, to the patient directly? And then we would bill that patient. We actually have the luxury of utilizing laboratories that are third-party bill, so we don't have to do any billing. We just send the testing to the laboratory. They work with the patient's insurance, and they usually have a self-pay price of $250. So regardless of how much money the test is, regardless of how much money is covered or not covered by the insurance, they can say, no, I don't want you to bill my insurance. Here's $250. I'm getting the test results, and everyone gets paid. The other thing is if we send a Medicaid patient, to one of those laboratories, they will bill Medicaid for us so the hospital doesn't lose any money. The patient never sees the bill and the test is essentially free. Um, so Medicaid is a very good system right now because no one can balance bill a Medicaid patient. So, and the hospital doesn't eat the cost of it, the genetic testing laboratories do. Medicare is tricky. Um, there's a lot of kind of players out there and I, I kind of use Medicare as a Inter intermittent to a, a public or a, a, a yeah a private payer which would be something like blue cross blue shield um so there's a lot of services that we can provide um that often we have to be very careful with medicaid medicare patients um some laboratories have like charity dollars so if that patient's out of pocket's going to be twelve hundred dollars we can ask hey this is a Medicare patient. They really need this. There's four or five other people in the family with this disorder who would like to put a label on it. They say, okay, we'll, we'll cover 70% of it with our charity dollars, or we'll pay the entirety of the test with our charity dollars. So that is something that some laboratories do. 
Um, but yeah, usually the, the sponsor tests, uh, going and getting your test billed from the laboratory um, for Medicaid patients usually is pretty helpful. Medicare is often pretty tricky to work with. And they don't teach you that in any grad school. You get to learn that on the job. Well, I just have yeah. yeah, I was just going to ask what is work looking like during quarantine with COVID going on in the university sets in a couple of months, like with overseas, going like, to get that. Sorry, I missed the, the front little bit of your question. So the first is like, what is it? Um, what does your work look like right now? I know you're in a hospital, so a lot of people are still working, but it has to be like a little bit different than normal times. And then it's mm -hmm. like, well, the question on it is like, what do you think will happen when the university says it's going to open up again? Do you think anything will change how it is right now? For my job, not a lot has changed. Um, a lot of the patients that we would see are, are being seen regardless. So a lot of them are inpatient, things like that. Our outpatient services are now kind of just transitioning to an at-home service. So I got the really fun task of, of taking all of our genetic testing that we do and turning them into some sort of algorithm to be able to send a spit kit to the family, have them spit in the tube and then send it to the laboratory. Um, and you can imagine all the different ways that can go wrong. Um, but I, I can also work from home if I need to. Um, most of most of my job I can do from home. Um, there are some key portions where I have to be here, things like reporting. I can't. I can sign out things when I'm at home, but I can't scan things in as we get them in from other labs. Um, but for the most part, I can do like ninety percent of my job from home, uh, which is pretty nice. But the, I think the biggest things is as people come back. I think U.S. Uh, is a much more socially driven country than a lot of other places, especially in health. Um, and public health. So you, you can see a, a second big spike coming and, and we're the only country that has really had that really devastating second spike so far. And it is because, I mean, if I was doing my job in England or any other place, I would have every single person's genetic information that I wanted, right? So we don't have the same types of, of public and private um, kind of rights in place as a lot of other places in the world. So if someone tells you to stay home, uh, we're going to stay home in a lot of other countries and you can be charged and convicted and, and, and fined for that. Um, here, uh, we're going to go back to kind of what America, America wanted it to be uh, a lot quicker than other, other places because we value our, our personal freedoms and our, and our um, high, I think a very heightened sense of privacy, um, especially surrounding our healthcare and, and, and our personal freedoms. So um, that's probably more opinion than anything. So, yeah, maybe don't record that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, is, it is, from a professional standpoint, um, just comparing the data that I use on very large-scale projects is data from foreign countries because we do have access to that. The most comparable thing um, in genetics in the U.S. is, is veterinary or, or, or veterans. So we do have a very large population of, of, of veterans who do not have the same rights to their own genetic information that, that the public would. Um, and a lot of very good research is done on, on very large cohorts of people that have fought in places like Korea um, and, and things like that. So we do have very large uh, that um, biobanks that we utilize for that, which is, is good and bad. And you can see that the issues that are surrounded by that with informed consent. Um, and, but you can also see the, the benefits of having 75,000 samples and you can do anything you want with them. 
Um, so two different approaches to the same type of things. When you can go to Belgium or something like that and have the whole country's population. So. I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like a two-part. So prior to becoming a laboratory genetic counselor, what would you say was like your best experience that helped you once you were actually in the field prior to? Prior to becoming a genetic counselor, I think that the, the best experience for me was probably volunteering to do that panel curation project. Mm -hmm. I just learned so much. I mean, I was interested in it. So like, when I looked up a gene, it would give me like a syndrome that gene was associated with, and I could have just taken it for face value. Mm -hmm. But then I would go and Google that syndrome, and it would just kind of like lead me down. You ever do like the Wikipedia game where you can see yeah. how far you can get from one thing to the next? It was kind of like that, but way more interesting because I actually cared about it. Um, so it was it was like that where I would I would go and find a list of genes from a thing, and then I would I would research why they were on there and find the common um, kind of disease that would all put them there. And then I would kind of then backtrack and see what other types of things would be going on in the patient who had a, a, a mutation in one of those genes and things like that. So um, it was more self-driven kind of discovery, but yeah. um, that was a really fun thing that I did and I really enjoyed. Um, I also did a lot of volunteer work uh, with doing, it's, it's kind of like they don't have team sports in, in Special Olympics, but I did a soccer program uh, mm -hmm. throughout college for, for individuals with special needs. Uh, that gave me a lot of insight just into appreciating how hard and difficult it can be to have someone in your family um, that needs a little bit more um, just attention and, and, and just needs a little bit more um, resources and, and everything like that. And uh, it really is an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing in a family. Um, and uh, those are some of the self, most selfless amazing people I've ever met is uh, people who, who care for those individuals and who um, are around those people. So those are, I think, the compassion side of that and then the technical side of, of the genetic testing panels were, were the kind of most um, rewarding and, and, and preparatory uh, experiences in my life. Definitely. And then my second question was like, okay, so of course what we're in now is kind of crazy and a lot of things like they're putting freezes on jobs and volunteering is not happening so is there any advice because i am a senior and like this summer of course i wanted to put in volunteer hours but i've been struggling with that aspect so is there a way to navigate it or has your hospital really talked about if they're going to open up volunteer what does that look like right um now? yeah so uh, unfortunately volunteer is probably gonna be one of the last things that opens up right Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's somewhat unnecessary people and public exposures that we could have in a hospital. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's, I mean, I did that University of Minnesota panel curation completely remotely. So um, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can learn about your, your future professions. You can volunteer. I mean, you can, you can get a lot done working remotely, right? Even just sending back and forth Excel documents and PowerPoints and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, doing your own research, kind of compiling data. Those are the types of things that um, I, I would I would kind of just change your kind of outlook on what volunteering would be. Okay. You don't need to go and stand at an entrance uh, at a hospital to, to fulfill your volunteer hours, right? Um, and that's probably, you probably find a bunch, much better way of volunteering than mm -hmm. doing that, right? Um, there's a, I mean, don't, I'm not bashing that. I think that's a great outlet, and I think it's very good to see 
what it's like to come to a hospital and an experience of being in the hospital. Right. Um, but I, I would I would reach out to to individuals and see if they can if they have. Uh, there's a lot of work that can be done uh, remotely. That, that I would I would highly suggest that. Um, it might not be super applicable, but just like I did, googling and finding like random panels, mm-hmm. you can do a lot of self exploration from the information that they're um, showing you, and things that you just wouldn't otherwise think of sitting at your own uh, home over the summer. So clinical experience is not like a, it doesn't need to be the focal point, basically, is what you're saying? Like, as long as you're getting the hours, it's what's most important? Yes and no. I mean, there's obviously, you, you need that, that clinical experience, and you want to be able to say, I know what that person does for a job. You, I've watched them do their job enough where I think that um, if you're going to invest time in me to go to your program, then I, I'm going to enjoy I, I'm not going to like leave your program because I didn't think it was going to be what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it, essentially, I would say it, it, because of COVID, it would be just it'd be better for you to do that than to wait till after COVID to, to right. do it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Of course. So, kind of as a follow up to that, um, we talked with Kim Foss last week. Okay. And she said that she took some time off between finishing undergraduate and starting genetic counseling school. And I was wondering what types of things students tend to do in that year or more if, when, they're, when they're in between um, yeah. schools. Um, so what kinds of things do you know that people have done? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of opportunity. It's a lot, there's a, actually a huge growing number of, uh, of positions for genetic counseling assistants. So you go in and, and they'll help you in a laboratory, especially. There's a lot of genetic counseling assistant positions in laboratories. Some clinics have them for help with insurance and, and documentation and things like that. Um, I think a, most of my friends went and worked at laboratories. Um, some of them did teaching um uh what else did they do some people i mean just kind of worked for money and then did as much volunteering as possible and and, uh, kind of applied themselves in that way um everyone has their own needs that they have to fill and i don't think they should ever be ashamed that you have to fill those needs um and you can always kind of work your way into doing that there's also babysitting just like even if babysitting can seem like such a uh, an empty thing to put on a resume but if you think about it you're sitting with somebody else's child you're learning about them if they have any needs you're caring for them those are the types of things where you're actually learning a lot of skills where people are often very deterred to put that on a resume or talk about it in a cover letter well if you can find a child who might need a little bit extra care who might have autism or just maybe some courts that you need to go and help out with and you nanny some people are like, oh, a nanny job is a one-off. If you're nanny, nannying a child with autism, that's not a one-off job. That's an exceptionally applied skill to be able to have. And you, again, just like volunteering, like I did with special needs, you gain, you gain such a really, uh, you, you just learn what happens in the household. Um, the extra care, uh, you can't just say, it's time to eat. And everyone says sound to eat. It's not like that. Um, the, the littlest things are such a battle. Um, and some of the other things are not. And they're super enjoyable. Some things that you think would be awful are, are some of the most rewarding, simple tasks that you do in the day. So well, I, I would say you could do just about anything 
as long as you approach it in the in the light where you're gaining skills to be able to go to your respective programs. Um, if you are nannying, but you want to go into a PhD program, or you really want to work in a laboratory, volunteer to maybe write grants for them, or call them and ask, hey, is there any data analyzing that I could do on my off time? Um, I remember accumulating like hundreds of cells of just something that I had to divide by like four, but they're all in different Excel documents, so you had to copy and paste them over. And like, that's the type of work where like, no one wants to do it. If you did it for somebody, they're gonna remember your name. They're also gonna help you if they had the next step and they're like, hey, I'm gonna call you so you can see me do the next few steps of it. Hopefully that they'll also help you and allow you and give you that transparency to be able to learn more about their laboratory. Those are the types of ends that, um, and networking that you can do as well during that time. Again, I'm a giant counselor, I just love hearing myself talk. Start the window in my door too. So as people are giving me things to do after this, I can see them. So I have to give them dirty looks so they don't give me too much burden. Um, a slightly random question. Uh, what's the male to female ratio in genetic counseling these days? I usually get that. Um, yeah, I'm like the white tiger of the profession. Um, I think it's still like 96 or 98%. Used to be 99, so I guess we're trending in the right um direction um i think it's always kind of like it's one of those jobs where it's striking but at the same time i think it's kind of nonsense um be, especially being of like the majority in all my other places in life i think like it's it's not a struggle for me and i think like it just gives it's one of those things where a lot of people like recognize it but for no reason um and i think that it's i don't know like, yeah there's, there's no reason really why it's rooted in that like most of the job is rooted in prenatal care and a lot of people were transitioning from um, specialized nursing degrees into that um, so the most people were just female to begin with and that like, that trend just kind of stayed um, it's getting a lot more technical and a lot more tech sided too and and I think that it's really good and uh, I think there's a larger issue that we don't have the diversity that we need um, in our profession. Um, of the 98% women, uh, probably about 90% of those women are white um, and usually upper to middle class. So I think that everybody should be able to walk in and see someone like them providing care, um, counseling them, um, those types of things. And, and I think we need to like in a lot of other places in our, in our world right now, to kind of actively break down those those lines. Um, I think having to take a GRE is a huge struggle. It's it's an expense. Those are the types of things where I, I learned nothing in the GRE that I used that made me qualified to go to graduate school. It shouldn't be a requirement. It, it, what that does is filter out people who can't afford to take a summer off, study for the GRE, good enough score, and also pay for the GRE score. And then pay to send it to schools too. It's just a money-making nonsense step. Um, so we, those are the types of things that us as a profession need to look at that seem really benign, that have a huge, huge barrier to people who are low socioeconomic uh, status. Um, so things like that, I think tuition reimbursement, I think allowing people to work, extending our degrees so that you can have less time or more time outside of your degree. Um, if I can get my genetic counseling degree in four years rather than two, but work and take care of my children at the same time, 
that's very different than having to take two years off of whatever job that you're doing um, to go back to school to then come back out. Um, yeah. So those are the types of things that I think are structurally, uh, again, hindering a lot of our growth in, in the diversity side of things. And I, have, I hate when people say, like, not, I, I get that question all the time. It's like, what's it like being a guy in Shannon Constant? Well, it's like being a guy in public. It's not any different. Um, uh, and I still have the same benefits of, of all the structures that we um, struggle with in a lot of other places. So I turn it back on people and say, it's probably a good thing. Women should be in science more than men. And you learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Being the only guy in the room, you learn how to be a better boyfriend, how not to get yelled at, all kinds of good stuff. I gave a presentation at my graduation of things that I learned how to be a better boyfriend via them talking about their boyfriends. It's <clears throat> good stuff. Keep that in the back of my mind. So we have 10 minutes left. Um, I was wondering if you could just give an, um, an outlook for the job landscape of genetic counselors. If anyone on the call is considering going this route, what can they look forward to? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think it's going to be genetics and healthcare in general is going to be an immensely, vastly growing field. I think that um, there is so much opportunity out there. People are still being hired throughout the pandemic. People are being hired at an exceptionally high rate. Every single one of my classmates, including myself, had a job before we were in the second semester of our second year. So we had jobs, yeah, before every single one of us did. Um, there's uh, huge strides in, in genetic research. There's a lot of companies developing new ways of looking at genetics that um, need our help to progress that into the clinic. And there's always a need for us to talk, have a better understanding and a better transparency with our patients about what's going on. Um, I think that physicians and, and people who are working at a much higher level sometimes can get bogged down about well, we don't explain to someone how we do IHC for breast cancer. Why do we need to explain to someone how we do genetic testing? Um, and I think that that's fine if you want to hinder how much education transparency our patients have with the healthcare that we're providing them. And I think that our profession is, is a new wave of, of education for our patients and a new kind of transparency um, that I think should be in healthcare. Um, so I think there will always be genetic counselors. There will always be people who need to take exceptionally complex information and make it accessible to everyone, whether it be through writing or face-to-face in clinic um, or in a report. So um, I, I don't have the data on me, but I, I would love to see the data of how much, how many genetic tests per patient or how many genetic tests per capita have been sent um, over the last 10 years, and I guarantee that's a very, very steep exponential growth uh, curve. So uh, I think more people will be getting genetic tests at any time. So. And with the public transparency with a lot of the 23andMe and, and public direct consumer genetic testing, I think it'll be even more important for people to be informed about the decisions they're making in, in relation to their genetics and healthcare. Mm-hmm. This is a random question, but you mentioned that you majored in biology in undergrad. So did you always know that you wanted to go into genetics or did you just end up going into it? Um, 
honestly. Yeah, I kind of just ended up in it. Um, but I, I really enjoyed genetics. It was always something I, that kind of pulled me in, and I, I saw a direct relation to it uh, in in healthcare. So um, my mom worked in healthcare, so I was I was very always attuned to that, and it's always a very um, robust career because not a lot of people lose their jobs in healthcare. Healthcare will always be there. People are always sick. People are always getting hurt. Um, people always need healthcare. So um, that's another, I've always had a very economic approach to it. So what, what, what will we always have a need for? Um, and, and how can I be a part of that, that kind of industry? Um, so this is just a happy medium of me not having to go to school for a billion years, um, uh, not having to take on a billion dollars in loans and, and also be able to be uh, educated well-respected um, and, and get into a profession that I enjoy a lot that's associated with genetics as well. Anything, any other questions? You guys have some great questions though. I don't have anything after this, so I'm happy to hang out. If you, anybody has anything pop up. Do you have any other questions about just generally in healthcare or science or what going to grad school is like? Um, how do you prepare for that? We can also uh, share your email after this, and, and students can reach out to you with any questions that might come up later. Um, the time is 12.53, so it's been a nice, long conversation. Are there any okay. question? Um, so can you talk about your personal statement and how sure. you geared that towards the school? Yeah. Um, I was lucky where I was going into such a niche kind of group that I didn't have to change it very much from school to school because uh, any personal statement that I wrote was, was kind of um, directed towards genetic counseling. And then I could just kind of swap a school name out. Um, but if you're applying for things like a specific laboratory, you would want to really research that laboratory to understand what it's like and, and kind of ex ex understand their, their main long-term goals. For me, it was more of, I want to go into this type of schooling, uh, and whoever was going to get it was going to get it. But I essentially just talked through a lot of the things like I, I, I talked about earlier, where, what, why was I passionate? Why do I know enough about the profession where I know that this is the right profession for me? Um, so I, I talked about my panel experience and how um, engaging it was without being forced to be engaged. I talked about how um, I could see the impact of what genetic counselors do on this level. Um, I talked about my rotations with, or I shadowed some genetic counselors as well in undergraduate school. So I talked about those experiences and how I, I saw a lot of parallels. And I could see myself in their shoes. Um, and I also talked a lot about just kind of unknowingly, like just from a personality standpoint, from an approach to life standpoint, and, and kind of my extroverted ways I felt very comfortable talking to people and I thought that counseling side of things came really easily to me um, and and I enjoy engage, engaging with people on, on deeper kind of conversations so um, I talked about that and, and and I think with anybody you can apply a good science background and then to have the personality to go along with it or the skills and counseling to go along with it is a little bit harder to find um, and I felt like that's kind of where I pitched myself. Um, a few things I always tell people is that don't ever be too modest. Uh, if you think you're good at something, 
you probably are. Uh, so, so talk about it, talk about it in depth. Um, know why you want to do what you're doing. Um, and be educated on, on the individuals that you're sending your, your um, information to. Um, and, and make sure that it's applicable to, applicable to them and, and appealing to them. All right, thank you. Of course. I think that's the key place where you can you can get people to remember your name and, and remember who you are and, and some of the experiences. They might not know that's you from that area, but they might say, hey, I, I remember you from your personal statement because of the work that you did with um, Top Soccer or uh, the interesting work that you did with the cardiology panels. Um, so they might just be able to put one and one together. And that's all you really need is that first connection to be able to kind of get that, that in. Um, so something that's happened in your life, a job that you've had that you've been really passionate about, an individual experiences, those types of things. You can draw a lot more out of those experiences than, than they are for face value. But yeah, I would definitely share my information with everybody. Feel free to email me at any given point in time about any questions. Uh, I get emails from a lot of prospective genetic counseling students and master's students and people who are doing their master's in bioinformatics and, and all, all kinds of different things. Um, I work with some people at the Appalachian State the School of Business to help out with some consulting work, um, those types of things too. So even if you're kind of not necessarily following a direct path, um, feel free to, to reach out. That's a victory in my book. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Thomas, for sharing experience and education and um, advice with all the students. All right. Well, I gotta go see how much work they gave me in my bin, but <laughs> I appreciate all you guys. You guys are a great audience and you get great questions. And like I said, feel free to email me if anything comes up later. Okay. Thank you. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.